0: Today's scripture is Genesis 13, 1 through 18. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together, and there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. "'Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. "'If you go to the left, I will go to the right. "'If you go to the right, I will go to the left.'" Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well-watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Erica, for reading that. Before we look at this text and the message this morning, I'd like to take a moment to pray for um, Israel and the violence that's happening there. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Father, I don't really have the words to ask. I'm hearing Bits and pieces of violence and death and war. And our hearts are heavy. Don't know how much of that news we can even take. But for those who are living there and those who are it, experiencing it and those who have already lost those whom they love, we call upon you and ask, how long, O oh Lord? We pray for the, the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for the peace of the land. We pray in your great wisdom and strength and power, even as we began our call to worship this morning, knowing that you have, you reign, your throne is above all the floods and the breakers and the noise of this earth. And we pray that you would break through all of that with a way towards peace. Comfort the morning diffuse somehow the anger and the hatred and forage away through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ a path to peace where people would put down their swords and turn into plowshares where the instruments of violence would be transformed and melted and, and refashioned to be instruments of building and reconciliation. We ask it knowing it's only possible through your work, through your strength, through your wisdom, and we call upon you to have mercy. In Christ's name, amen. This fall and all the way up to the season of Advent, We will be in a teaching series on the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. The story of Abraham is one of the most important. It's one of the most foundational stories in all of the Bible. And we have a big clue as to how important Abraham is from his two names. That's what's a little bit confusing about the story. He's called Abram at the beginning, Abraham later, because God changes his name. Um, Abram means something like exalted father, like Papa, and Abraham means father of the multitudes, so like Big Papa, as somehow <laughs> That's kind of a common preacher joke, so I had to get that in there. <laughs> but those names are really instructive. They, um, they tell us how we're meant to read his story, as a father, as like a founding father. And the New Testament tells us that his, his journey... Uh, is a journey we're meant to follow. We're meant to follow in the footsteps of our father, Abraham. He's the father of all who believe. So his journey can teach us what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to grow and live as a Christian, what living by faith is, what is trust and belief and confidence in God look like from beginning to end. So last week we skipped ahead over this chapter because that text was appropriate to a special Sunday where we were ordaining new leadership in our church, and that had application to that. We're going back now, and we'll follow along and trace Abraham's journey by looking at this text we just read together. As I've mentioned a few times, Abram's story in the book of Genesis, it's told in a certain way. It's told as a series of tests. Scholars count these tests. There are 10 tests that Abraham goes through, ten ordeals of faith that he experiences. And these tests, they have several purposes. One, they reveal or they show where Abram's faith is. Where is it really? Two, they refine and strengthen his faith as he goes along the journey. And three, over and over again, even when Abraham fails the test, these tests also prove God's faithfulness to him. God's faithfulness to his promise that God can be trusted to follow through on what he says. That's for Abraham. And as even we see this text here, all of Abraham's descendants, physical and spiritual, all who trust in God like he did. Test one, we looked at a few weeks ago, chapter 12, one through nine, that's the beginning of Abram's relationship with God, where God says, I'm calling you out to a land you've never seen go. And Abram goes. Test two, we also looked at, was famine. Chapter 12, verse 10 and following. So Abram passes the first test. He goes to this land. He doesn't know what to expect. And while he gets there, we don't know how long, maybe a few months passed, there was a famine. And Abraham thought, what is happening? What, what are you doing? Like David mentioned in our call to confession, God, how could this be a part of the plan? Understandably, he was very confused. And we saw that he didn't handle this test very well. When there was a famine, he left the promised land, which are the boundaries God had given him for his blessing and for the mission God had called him to, to be a blessing. He went to Egypt in fear. He lied about his wife to save himself She was kidnapped, and only after God intervened with plagues on Pharaoh, who took her, did Abraham come back to the place where he had come from. If you look at verses 1 through 4 in our text this morning, it tells us about Abraham's return, his return to God in repentance after failing that test. So after... Going up from Egypt, it says in verse 1, he came to the Negev in the southern part of Israel. He, his wife, all he had, Lot with him. He was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the Lord there. So this is a picture of repentance. What happened after that? is Abraham's or Abram's third test. What is his third test? Verse 5. Lot, his nephew, was traveling with him. He also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. Why? They had so many possessions, it says, they couldn't stay together. They were running out of space. They had both... Maxed out their wealth and they couldn't grow anymore. In verse 7 tells us what was happening. There was quarreling and conflict between their herdsmen. Abram and Lot, at this point, were doing really, really well. Things were good for them, they were prospering. The end of verse 7 explains. Uh, Some of the reason why they had reached the limit of the land, there were other people still living in the land. They had those territories, but they they were maxed out on the land that was available to them. So they couldn't get richer, they couldn't get wealthier or prosper further. What will Abram do? This is test number three, the test of prosperity. And maybe you hear that and you say, What? Wait? There's a test of prosperity? Well, sign me up for that test because I want to take that one. You know, that's a test I think I'd like to, to have in my life. But as we look at this story and as we look at the rest of the Bible, the Bible says not so fast. On the one hand, we are taught in Scripture that it isn't wrong, it's not sinful to be prosperous, to be successful, to be wealthy. A natural reading of this story in Abram's story is that it, it seems pretty clear God is the one who has given him the gift of this prosperity and wealth. It was a gift. Prosperity in itself is not bad, but the Bible also teaches that prosperity is one of the hardest tests, one of the greatest dangers, ordeals, and threats to living by faith. This is something clearly we might say loudly taught in the rest of Scripture. Before we dig into the story, I just want to show you a few examples of where this is taught. And we have slides for these texts. Deuteronomy 8 says, When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver, silver and gold multiply, which is the exact same language from this text. And everything else you have increases. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Interestingly, where Abram had just come from. Out of the place of slavery, you may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. It was a gift and it's a danger. Next text, Proverbs 30. It's like a a little prayer in the midst of the Proverbs where it says, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Jesus, as we just read in our call to confession, um, he, he talked a lot about this. One of his most frequent teachings was about The test of prosperity. And in Mark, he said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? In Luke chapter 12, one other example, he tells the story of somebody who had barns that were full. And he's like, My barns are full. What should I do? Build some more bigger barns. And Jesus says, In response to that story, What a fool! Because this night, his soul was demanded of him. There's a danger to prosperity. And then 1 Timothy 6, one more. Let's go. There's Mark 10, 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to be rich, so this is not even talking about those who are rich or are prospering. Those who just want to be prosperous fall into temptation, a trap. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, again, not having it only, but craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If I could just summarize these four passages, and there could be so many more. The Bible teaches with prosperity comes the danger of pride an increased likelihood of forgetting God. With prosperity or even the desire to be more prosperous comes the danger of denying God and saying, who is he? I don't need him. When prosperity increases, so does the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. Prosperity can be the cause of ruin, destruction, wandering from the faith, and piercing ourselves with many griefs. I mean, that's quite a list. Even just putting that together this week, I was like, wow, th- this, is, this is a lot. This is convicting and this is clear. The Bible clearly and repeatedly says living in or even around wealth and wanting to be prosperous is a test. And so just for a moment, we can consider as some, uh, as people <laughs> living in a place of great prosperity like we do. Maybe we don't consider ourselves wealthy or rich, but we live in a nation of great prosperity at a time of great prosperity, globally, historically, in a culture built and fueled by consumerism that has a script for people to follow for our lives that says, here's the path you should follow. You should do X, Y, Z, Y in order to be prosperous. You should... Go to school, get good grades, go to college, etc. So you'll have enough money. This will be the dream. This is a life of prosperity. The Bible says this is a warning light. The light is on here in Genesis 13. Prosperity, silver, gold, livestock. This is a test what will happen. Let's look at the two characters, the two main characters in this story. First, with Lot. How does he handle it? In verse 8, Abram gives Lot the choice, and he says, clearly clearly we need to separate, and Lot, I'm going to give you the first pick. What does Lot choose? Verse 10 tells us, Lot looked out, the Hebrew is, he lifted up his eyes. He was up on, on the high mountain, likely in the terrain there, he was looking out over the valleys and over the area, and he saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, and the land of Egypt. So, in verse 11, we read, "Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself," which makes a lot of sense. He saw it; it was lush, it was fertile, it was great for livestock, and more prosperity. He could expand his wealth. Abram stayed in Canaan, the promised land, but Lot lived as it tells us, in the cities on the plain. And what it says here is he set up his tent near Sodom, which was, we learn, a prosperous city. and also makes sense. If you want to grow your prosperity and your wealth and advance your career, go near a city where there's trade and there's more opportunity for success. So really, this seems like a very obvious choice for Lot. It's the next step in his career in building up his wealth for himself and his family. And just thinking about that, can we blame him for making this choice? Because Abraham said, whatever you want, just take it. And he chose what seems to make sense. But there's something that Lot didn't see. The narrator gives two insights here that Lot didn't see, or maybe he chose not to see. They're put in parentheses here in the translation. You see these parentheses? verse 13 Now the men of Sodom were evil sinning immensely against the Lord That's a very intense description of sin it's not just their sin, sinning or evil they're sinning immensely This is not a righteous place to say the very least So what Lot chose to do was to go to the very edge of the promised land. He was right on the edge, right on the edge of the boundaries where God said he would bless Abram and make him a blessing. He was living right there on the edge and Lot said, I I can get right next to evil, I can get right on the edge, I'm not going to go all the way in, I can get right next to people sinning immensely against the Lord, but I won't let it affect me. Ezekiel 16 tells us what kind of evil it was. That was happening in Sodom. It's not normally what we first associate with Sodom, if you know some of the Bible's story. It says this in Ezekiel 1649. Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. This was the sin, the immense sin. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but did not support the poor and needy. They were haughty. And did detestable acts before me. So I removed them when I saw this. This was a prosperous place, and the way that they were using and living in their prosperity had made them prideful. It was a place of injustice. If you look at verse 10, there's, there's the warning given. The narrator says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll get to in a few chapters in the story. So we have to ask, why would Lot put himself in such a place of spiritual compromise and spiritual danger to himself and to his family? And we say, okay, I'm tracking here. I think the answer is greed. It was greed. Yes, but there's more here. It gets deeper. And the text help us get get underneath the answer that just says, he was just trying to get more wealthy. Look at verse 10. When it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw, this verse is giving us really uh, Lot's perspective. The narrator is getting us into Lot's sight and mindset. What did he see? It says... He didn't just see material prosperity. He lifted up his eyes and saw it look like the garden of the Lord. This is so significant. What did he see? He saw a way back, a return back to the garden, to Eden. And here is the nuance and the depth to the Bible's teaching about prosperity, money, wealth. It's not sinful and wrong and bad. It's what we believe our prosperity will do for us and give to us. It's the faith we put into prosperity, wealth, riches, whether we have it or we want more of it. And like the pastor just said before, we crave it and we're living around it. And we think if we have more of it, only if we have more of it, then we will maybe get back to the garden of the Lord. The security of the garden of the Lord where we have everything we need. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious of what will happen in the future. The safety of the garden of the Lord, where it's lush and everything we need is here. The significance of the garden of the Lord, where the Lord himself said to Adam and Eve, I bless you. Be fruitful and multiply and rule over this place. You are my vice regents, my priest kings. You have purpose and you have my power, my blessing given to you to do that work. The security, the safety, the significance, the garden of the Lord. We want to get back. To know we are taken care of. To know the future will be okay. To know that we matter and we are able to do what we need to do to live in this life. Here Lot looked, he lifted up his eyes and it looked to him like the garden of the Lord. But one thing was missing, the Lord. Just like the original temptation in the garden, which Adam and Eve were told, you can have all you want and more without him and his rule and his word and his boundaries. John Calvin, in his great commentary on this passage, said this, I'd like to share it with you. He said, let us learn by this example, Lot. That our eyes, what we see when we lift up our eyes, are not to be trusted, but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled, unawares with many evils, just as Lot. When he fancied that he was dwelling in the paradise, he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. We'll learn more about why he says that as we learn more of Lot's story. This brings to mind an illustration of how prosperity works. If you've ever gone fishing in a little like fishing pond that's overfished and, you know, it's just a little pond and the fish are there and it's like, hey, catch some fish here. Um, And you put the the bait on and you put it in and the fish do not pay any attention to the bait. They're just swimming along. It's like impossible to get their attention. You're like, this is the worm. This is the food. Come and eat it. But if they've been caught a hundred times, a thousand times, eventually even fish learn. That looks really yummy. But if I bite it and try to eat it, I will get yanked out of this pond and manhandled and then thrown back. Or worse. They've learned. They know. You can't have the bait and not get the hook. Prosperity and wealth It's like there's the bait of the garden, of getting back, of having the safety, the security, the significance we want, but there's always the hook. You can have it without God that pulls and draws us away from him and towards compromise. The Bible says it's nearly impossible to get the bait and not get the hook, to be drawn away, to be pulled into what wealth tells us it can give us. And this was the tragedy of Lot's choice. And we'll see, it led to his and his family's ruin. What about Abram's choice? How did he do with the test? Let's look at it. Same situation as Lot, same thing. He's prospering, He is wealthy, he's doing well. It's a gift of God. He had silver and gold and livestock and all that. And he, he can't grow as long as he's sharing it all with Lot. But Abram's choice here is, distinct from Lot in that Abram, this is the difference here, he was, like we said, the big, the papa and the big papa of the clan. And and Lot was his nephew. The land was promised to him by God. So Abram's choice defies all cultural norms here for him to give Lot the choice. And even common sense, normal common sense in the culture would have said, Lot, bro, I am sorry. But I am the papa, and you are the nephew. This is my land, my territory. I've got the promise, so you go over there. I'm taking the best land. But Abram chose the exact opposite. With regard to prosperity, this is, for his day, so countercultural and so counterintuitive, it doesn't make sense. Like, he's the clan leader, the head of the family. He is in a superior position to Lot. Lot owed him everything he had, really, because he was riding his coattails. Here, what's happening is Abram is giving up what is rightfully his, the land God promised him. He, the social superior and elder, is conceding to the inferior. So countercultural and so counterintuitive, he let go of the opportunity to advance himself, his wealth, his riches, he just let it go. And in this conflict, like this is a conflict, if you could kind of imagine family and money and all that stuff, it gets a little dicey sometimes. And so here he and Lot come together. It's a conflict. It's not an easy one. He's so calm. He comes up with a solution, which is so generous. How? Why? Well, from the text, we see a few answers to why he did this and how he did this. In verse 8, it says, please, Abram says to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between our herdsmen, since we are relatives, we are brothers, literally. Abram is saying, Lot, our relationship matters more to me than getting more wealth, than expanding my prosperity. And he proved this in the next chapter we saw last week. He risked everything to save Lot when Lot had got himself into trouble. In addition to that, after coming back from Egypt, Abram, when he lifted up his eyes and saw the same thing Lot saw, said, I'm not going back to a place that's like Egypt as it's described. I'm not going to the very edge of the land. I'm not going to cross the boundaries God has given me. So, his relationship with Lot mattered more than his wealth, and his relationship to God mattered more than his wealth. And those are the two reasons behind his choice, why he let it go, why he said, Lot, you choose. Because Lot, you matter more to me, and God matters more to me. So, he did something so countercultural, so counterintuitive. Just a moment to spend on application here. I mean, no, nobody says out loud at least, I value money more than my relationships. I don't think anybody would just come out and say that. You know, given a choice between my money and my children, money every time. <laughs> we, don't, we don't say that. But we, it's not that blatant. It's not that obvious. Abram could have come up with a number of reasons why he could have picked the best land. But, so we must ask ourselves some questions here. Is what I'm pursuing and seeking and choosing coming at the cost of my relationships? The people God has put into my life and with God. What is the pursuit of prosperity costing me? In our country, as Christians, my Christian friends, we have to ask the question, given all that we've seen that the scriptures say about the test of prosperity Am I being drawn? Am I hooked? And how might it be affecting my relationships and my relationship to God? So let's talk a little bit more about our choice here. What was the result of Lot's choice? We'll see in the coming weeks, it, it was bad. It was ruin in every way. Prosperity was his God, his source of security, safety, significance. It ruined him. What was the result of Abram's choice? It's in verse 14. After Lot went, and, and the Lord said, he appeared to Abram and said, Look, Abram, same Hebrew as back when Lot lifted up his eyes. It says, Abram, lift up your eyes. And God says, You gave up your rights, Abram, so I'm giving you the rights to this whole land. You humbled yourself, so I'm exalting you. And your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You gave it all up, so I'm giving you you gave it all up, Abram, so I'm giving it all to you. You chose the Lord of the garden over the garden without the Lord. The test of prosperity you passed, so not only you, but all of your descendants after you are promised this blessing. Here, Abram points us to his greater son, who faced an even greater test of prosperity And earned an even greater blessing, not only for himself, but all of his family. All those who are united to him. Jesus Christ, who was also taken to a high mountain, said, lift up your eyes. And he was shown all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he was told a lie by a deceiver, by the devil. I will give you all these things. This was his test. If you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said no. No, there is no garden without the Lord of the garden. I see the hook. I'm not taking the bait. The irony is that unlike Abram, all of this was already Jesus's. It was already his. He could have had the land. He had the garden of the Lord by right, by his perfect obedience. But... If he kept it all to himself, then we couldn't have it. No one else could have it. We couldn't get back unless, and this was the temptation for Jesus. You can have it all, Jesus, but you can't have them unless he gave it all up, unless he was willing to lose it all, unless he humbled himself and became poor. As the hymn says, He left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite, his grace, he emptied himself of all but love. Why? Why did he leave it behind? Why did he leave the garden of the Lord? To bleed for Adam's helpless race. Adam's helplessly hooked race, looking to prosperity to get us back to the garden. And all the while moving further and further away from the Lord, being dragged on the hook. This is the gospel. Jesus saying to us, I gave up my rights as Lord and King. I chose to become poor so you could have all the riches of a son and daughter of God. In our sin, essentially what we're saying is, we want the garden of the Lord, but we don't want you, Lord of the garden. On the cross, Jesus is saying to us, I'm taking the consequence of that choice. I'm taking the judgment of that choice in your place. Life apart from God. Hell itself. So you can come back to the Lord of the garden. So you can have His assurance that all the riches of His grace are yours. That His promise is for you. Like Abram, Jesus was willing to lose so we could gain and be set free from putting our faith in more wealth, more success. If I had more prosperity, and so that we could live countercultural, counterintuitive lives, and make those same kind of choices like Abram made. The logic that is in the New Testament everywhere when it comes to prosperity, when it comes to our questions of how do I know my needs will be taken care of and the future will be okay, is this. If God gave us his son, his greatest treasure, if Jesus gave us everything, his very self and life, then how will God withhold anything that we truly need? If we believe that, we can live in such great freedom. We can make those countercultural, those counterintuitive choices. Practically, what does this look like? Well, just like Abram and Lot both lifted up their eyes, they saw two very different things. Lot saw something like the garden of the Lord. He saw Sodom. He saw prosperity and went after it. And Abram looked out and what did he see? He saw a land of abundance. He saw somehow in this land that God had promised him God would take care of him. Jesus said it comes down to what we see in the Sermon on the Mound. You remember what he said? He said, look, see, go out and look around and look at the birds. They don't have savings accounts, but they are well fed. Aren't you worth more than them? Look at the flowers of the field. They don't look like they're overworked and exhausted, but they are more beautiful than Solomon, the richest person ever in the Bible. If you see that, if you see God the Father doing that, oh, you of little faith, Jesus said, won't he do so much more for you? Sometimes economics is defined as the study of scarcity. (laughs) Jesus says, change the way you see. And look, don't see scarcity, see abundance. This is God's good world. This is your Father's will. He has enough. He'll take care of you. And catch yourself when you're looking out and you see it's not enough. There's not enough. What will we do? What will we eat? How will we make? What will we have? Who will I be if Jesus says, change your thinking and see the abundance and grace of the Father. Secondly, do what Abram did. Do what Jesus did. Become poor so that others might become rich. Take action. Make it practical. Make it tangible. Let go. Be generous. Growing in faith and trust in God to provide you with the significance and security that money and wealth promises is not simply an intellectual exercise or purely spiritual kind of thing. It's very practical. We have to let go. We have to give away. We have to share. And so in the sharing, we grab a hold of the promise of God. We let go we're less hooked. (laughs) We don't take the bait. We have to give. We have to be generous. And so the promise of scripture rings true more and more to us when we are. As Paul said to the Philippian church when they had been generous to him, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My Christian friends, my Trinity family, this test of prosperity that we've been looking at, I think... In my opinion, this might be our greatest test in our culture, in Orange County, in the United States of America. The most countercultural, counterintuitive way that we can bear witness to Jesus in generosity, in valuing relationships over prosperity. This test, us learning to pass the test of prosperity, might be our greatest opportunity. To bear witness to Jesus, to our friends and neighbors. May we be set free to do so. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see. You've given it all up for us. You let it all go. You humbled yourself so that we would be set free from the lie of thinking there is a garden without the Lord. Thank you for bringing us back to the Lord, our Father. Help us trust him for everything we need knowing that we're safe in his love, secure in the righteousness you've given to us, and significant, so significant, so worth worth so much to you that you would die for us. Set us free and help us bear witness with our lives. To that freedom, we pray in your name. Amen.